Nights Walkley Media Talk, hosted by our event partners, the State Library of New South Wales. My name's Claire Fletcher and I work at the Walkley Foundation. Before we start, I'd like to acknowledge and pay my respects to the traditional owners of the land that we're meeting on today, and that's the elders, past and present, of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. You can also join the conversation on Twitter using the hashtag Walkleys or at Walkleys our handle. But let's get into the main event. Tonight our conversation is about Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander journalists and issues. We have such a fantastic panel of amazing First Nations women with us. They're editors, journalists, communicators and they're storytellers so I really can't wait to soak up what they all have to say. As our moderator, Natalie Armat is going to guide the conversation tonight and she will introduce the panellists to you in a little more detail, Natalie is a proud Mudbara and Moby York Island First Nations woman, and she's really passionate about telling Australian stories through an Indigenous lens. Natalie currently presents NITV News, and she's a regular contributor on NITV's current affairs program, The Point. Natalie started her journalism career as a sports broadcasting trainee at ABC Radio in Darwin in 1999, and since then she's worked for Channel 9 Darwin. Imparja Television in Alice Springs, Atsik Radio and Message Stick on ABC TV before she joined the inaugural NITV News team in 2008. She's got many off-camera roles in the community and one of them is that she's a member of the Walkley Judging Board. So we love Natalie. Please make her welcome and the full panel. Thanks for that, Claire, and thank you all for, for being here tonight. It's wonderful to see so many here. I also would just like to start by acknowledging the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, who of course are the traditional owners of the city area here in Sydney. It's my job to introduce our panellists, but rather than reading long bios, I sort of want to start with a question that we ask everyone who is a new starter at NITV, regardless of whether you're Indigenous or not, and that's who's your mob and where you're from? And given what we're chatting about tonight, we might also get you guys to include a little bit about your journey and how you found your way into the role you are now. So we might start with Yale on the end there. Hello, my name's Yale. I'm a proud Kalkadoon woman, which is up near Cloncurry, Mount Isa. But I grew up in Rockhampton, Central Queensland, which is Rumble country. And I'm also proud to be Australian South Sea Islander. And I'd also just like to acknowledge my mum here in the audience, Delilah. <laughs> And so a bit about me, I'm a digital producer at ABC and I, in particular I work for ABC Indigenous. I started at the ABC three and a half years ago in regional and local, so producing short-form video content in partnerships with different organisations, government organisations obviously, the ABC. But since then I've worked on a lot of projects ranging from, I did a project around the right wrongs, which is around the 1967 referendum, which was an in-depth digital feature. I worked on Blood on the Tracks, which was the winner of the last year's Indigenous Affairs Walkley. And at the moment, I'm working in ABC Indigenous and doing a lot of, which, as a digital producer, creating digital content through contents that's already going through the ABC, as well as making original content. So it's a lot of social media interactions and repurposing stories with the Indigenous audience in mind. Naji Gurujin, Nay Nilawal, Shannon Dodson, Nayu Yaru Jandu. Hello everyone, my name is Shannon Dodson. I'm a Yaru woman. My family comes from Broome in Western Australia. 
I am not a journalist, <laughs> but I think that my dad still tells people that I am <laughs> because he thinks that I studied journalism at university. But <laughs> I work in communications, but I also do a lot of freelance writing for The Guardian and other online. But I currently work at the University of Technology in Sydney and I'm the communications manager for the Pro Vice-Chancellor Indigenous. So working a lot around Indigenous education, which I'm really passionate about. I also am on the Committee for Media Diversity Australia and so what we're trying to do is to get the Australian media to better reflect the Australia that we are. And so we work on a lot of different projects. I worked on a big project where I helped the team create an Indigenous reporting handbook. So there hadn't kind of been anything recent. And so this was a new thing to sort of help journalists to better report on Indigenous people and issues. And so we have a lot of other projects on the go as well. My name's Ray Johnston. I'm a Wiradjuri woman. My family's originally from Arambi Mission in Cowra, but I grew up in a little place called Warombi, which is on Darug country. I am primarily a journalist that focuses on STEM, so science, technology, engineering, maths. I started off writing about video games and it kind of expanded from there into tech and more general science and pop culture. So anything that kind of falls under a geeky umbrella, I'm all over. I don't have any formal qualifications to do what I do. I learned everything that I know on the job and just kind of worked my way up. I'm currently working as the editor of Junkie, which is a youth media site that focuses on pop culture, politics, music, entertainment, and also now that I'm there, video games and technology and a bit of science thrown in as well. I also host a show with Benjamin Law called That Startup Show that we filmed down in Melbourne. And that focuses on, as the name suggests, startups, primarily in technology. And we just kind of mentor these businesses to be able to be successful. I like to call it like a nice dragon's den. That, that's pretty cool. And yeah, previously I've also worked over at NITV. I hosted a children's television Indigenous science program called Rewired. I jump on the point every now and again to guest host. I used to be a co-host over there. Yeah, I'm losing track. Oh, and I'm also a mentor through the working lunch for underrepresented people in STEM. Fantastic. I don't think I forgot anything. <laughs> And I'm sure we'll come back because we've all got such diverse experience, which is what's really exciting. So I'm sure we'll come back and pick up a bit more on that media diversity and, and your work in, in STEM, Ray. But look, tonight's panel, as we've said, is telling our stories, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander journalists. But I do sort of want to start by broadening that out a little bit, I think, to talk about Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander voices so that we're talking tonight, I guess, not just about journalists but talking about people who might be our you know talents or panelists or who write op-eds and also including other Indigenous people who work in other roles across the media too who obviously help tell Indigenous stories and in fact all stories. So I guess to use that voice as our jumping off point tonight, my next question to all of our panellists is how do you think that we're doing generally in Australia in terms of including Indigenous voices? I think it's definitely better. I've seen it get much better over even the last few years, but 
obviously from a media diversity perspective, you know, we know that it's not good enough. And I did see there was a study done recently by PwC of the media and entertainment industry and it was almost 83% were just English speaking and the average person in that was a young white male that lived in the eastern suburbs or inner west of Sydney. So, like, it's not obviously still not very diverse and it's, it doesn't really reflect the Australia that we we all live in. And I think particularly around Indigenous voices, I think, you know, obviously having NITV is amazing and the way that SBS has now integrated that much more into their general sort of programming is fantastic and it's really important for us to have a channel where we can tell our stories in our own way because even if we are included in mainstream there's still a lot of parameters around you know what we can say how we can say things so that really is an important voice for us but we also need that important part of having Indigenous people, you know, in the ABC, editing, you know, youth publications and being in mainstream media like Brooke Boney on Channel 9 because we need to have those voices reaching an audience that don't always necessarily hear those voices. I don't think I've ever worked in a newsroom where I wasn't the only black journalist other than being at NITV. So you feel very alone in those circumstances as well. You you feel a bit lonely and you're kind of looking around going, all right, it's on me. And you might be arguing with people to be able to tell the stories that you deem important that they don't think they're very important because they're not going to get the clicks, they're not going to get the traffic or, you know, it's it's just an issue that they don't see as an issue, but we know it is an issue. So I think that increasing diversity in those newsrooms is is critical. And, yeah, I, I primarily work with young white male people that live in the eastern suburbs. That's, that's my newsrooms. That's what they look like. And in the realm of tech journalism as well, there's one other black tech journalist that I know, and that's Juro. Wow, yeah. And the rest are all just white. So not having those First Nations perspectives... On those topics as well, the readers are really missing out. You know, the audiences are missing out on a really rich history of understanding a different viewpoint when it comes to science and tech. And going on from that, I think the main, you know, there's a, like there's an influx of doctors and lawyers, indigenous doctors and lawyers in all degrees. There's the influx of indigenous journalists, but... It's about supporting those Indigenous journalists in these newsrooms because you can go and do a lot of jobs with a journalist degree. Like, they don't have to go and work for a main news channel. So it's about, you know, retention and supporting and training and also, you know, the cultural awareness in these newsrooms and support things that's issues such as casual racism or, you know, sly comments or, you know, they may not be intentional but they still happen and they're still hurting these young people. So it's about supporting them so they do, you know, grow and learn their, their, you know, career and grow so that's, and become respected, you know, senior Indigenous journalists. Yeah. Yeah. Can I just add, I think particularly with the work that we do with media diversity, 
it's kind of a bit of a buzzword at the moment. Like there are a lot of news outlets that are like, we have to deal with diversity and there's all these things we need to do. And, you know, you see we've had so many conversations with people being like, yes, we're going to like improve our diversity, but they don't then take the steps to actually do that. It's kind of all talk. Like, I mean, just to be like completely blunt, like the fact that there's not more people from the media here tonight listening to our voices, you know, is like kind of telling of like where people's heads are at. Like it's like, oh, yeah, like we, we're all about diversity, but then they won't actually like walk the talk and do the hard work to figure out what that might look like. And so that's a real issue that people like it'll be like oh yeah let's just throw a whole bunch of money and get some interns in and you know then we'll feel really good about ourselves but it's like what you're saying is that you need to create an environment that is inclusive and makes people feel like they are comfortable in that situation and that takes a lot of different ways and means of doing that so and you, you don't want to be putting the burden on the people that are coming into this business to make it more diverse they've been invited in and said you know we really need to diversify our team and our staff so we'll hire you and you and you and you but they don't make any structural changes to the organization and it's reliant on those people that they've brought into the business to be consultants in their role as well and they should just be free to do their jobs not be providing you know cultural awareness for their employers it, it needs to be a culturally safe workplace before they walk through the door. Can I ask then what we think that newsrooms and, and media organisations and I think workplaces in general can do better to, to support Indigenous employees, especially in these situations where, you know, you're, you're the only black fella <laughs> in the room? <laughs> I think a bit of education beforehand. There are plenty of businesses that do this. A bit of Googling would help rather than just turning to the only black person you know. <laughs> so, yeah, bring in an external consultant, have a chat with them about what you can do to make changes and educate yourself about the nuances of, of having a black journalist in your newsroom and, and what you might need to consider. Yeah, I mean, we were talking about this before is that you do end up being kind of the like black encyclopedia if you're like one of the like if you're one of the only indigenous staff members people will just constantly ask you for advice and so for me personally like I have the sort of feeling that I'm happy to do that because I feel like I can provide that but there are a lot of people that don't feel comfortable to do that or, you know, they that's quite exhausting. And for me it can be really exhausting because, like, I constantly get asked for advice and then advice turns into you basically doing work for them. And so, you're do, like, I'm literally doing, you know, hours and hours of unpaid work constantly. Like, I don't think people understand, like, how much Indigenous people have to carry not just, like, their everyday job. Like, I think most of us are constantly carrying like a lot of other you know whether it is around advice or so it's just being mindful of you know yeah like educating yourself but also you know kind of you know checking in with that person like hey like I've got this question you know do you mind if I have a chat with you about it or can you direct me to someone or whatever like you know I don't want to burden you or that kind of thing so just being like more mindful that 
you know, you, just because you have this black person doesn't mean that they are then like your Google. Yeah. <laughs> um, That's, at one point I did want to print up a T-shirt that just said Aboriginal Google. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes, workplace cultural change, but it's also just kind of stopping so defensive. Like just because, you know, you know, if you pull something up, so, for example, if someone in the newsroom or whatever part of the division you work in says something kind of out of line and you report it, don't defend that person and say, you know, it's a lack of education, it's a lack of blah. Go and do something about it. Like, go and say, go and say, put him into cultural awareness or her into cultural awareness training. Like, you know, I think it's a stop making excuses for other employees it's like, yes, it's happened. It's not a big deal. Like, well, it is a big deal. But, you know, in terms of you're not going to get fired over it, but how about we start putting some education in place or some, like, you know, responsibility and accountability for the words or the actions that happen? Yeah, so just really, yeah, stop being defensive about these situations because they can get resolved and that's the only way it's going to happen. You know, that's the only way we're going to move on and, you know, have these workplace cultural changes. Now, right. One of the things I wanted to talk to you about is, you know, working in the science and tech space and, uh, you know, when you, you told us all of all of the different hats and, and jobs yeah. that, that you wear, you know, you've appeared on a lot of different TV and, and radio programs, you know, talking science and tech, not necessarily talking, you know, just about Indigenous issues. How important is it that we see Indigenous people and Indigenous voices involved in wider discussions about any anything that's newsworthy and in the news and and you know are you concerned that that all too often indigenous people are are pigeonholed yeah absolutely I think when you come into a newsroom particularly a predominantly white or all white newsroom as an aboriginal journalist they go oh okay cool so you're going to be covering all the indigenous affairs issues and it's like well that actually that's I can do that generally but that's not actually my specialty and I should be allowed to be an expert in the things I'm an expert in. We, we need to be given the opportunity to excel at the things we excel at rather than having to be generalists all the time. Let us sit in our expertise. So that's, that's something that I feel really passionate about. And I think also the more that we hear from Aboriginal people about science and technology, you know, the more normalised it becomes that that is legitimate. I'm constantly fighting this battle with people that say, oh, but that's not real science. That wasn't real technology. That was, you know, sticks and, and rocks. And I'd say, no. <laughs> like, ever been in a helicopter? <laughs> that's because of us. So I think we need more of those voices there to make it clear that, yeah, we are talking about real science. We're talking about real technology. And we need to be considering that when we're talking about modern usages of it. And we need more representation in those spaces. It's it's overwhelmingly male-dominated spaces, for, for starters. The Australian games industry is 83% male at the moment and predominantly white. So then when you narrow it down to including blackfellas as well, I think there's about six of us in, in the entire games industry in Australia. And I only found out about four of them when the PAX panels were announced and there's an Indigenous games PAX panel and I quickly got on the phone with them all and went, hey, where have you been? Like, I'm so glad to hear from you. So I think we need more representation in those spaces because you know, it's, it's another way to get our stories heard. But I, 
I hate being pigeonholed. I hate it. Let me be an expert in the things that I'm an expert in. And, and don't invite me on your show to talk about the things I'm an expert in, but then throw native title law at me as a topic that I just need to learn in half an hour before we go on air. There's people that have been working in that space for decades and their voices need to be heard. Their expertise need to be heard. So, yeah, let me, let me do the thing I'm good at, please. <laughs> Now, we sort of obviously mentioned there's still a way to go, but I think we can all agree that we have sort of come in the last couple of years in terms of we are hearing more Indigenous voices and it is great to see the likes of Norelda Jacobs and Brooke Boney up there, you know, and again, just, just doing their thing. They're not Indigenous affairs specialists. So I'm sort of wondering, though, why do you think that we are starting to hear more Indigenous voices and, and what role do you think social media has had to play in that? Because we all know, well, if you don't know, blackfellas love their social yeah, media. Yeah. Yeah. Every, on everyone's on Facebook. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. I'm just sort of wondering what role social media has played for Indigenous people to have a voice where perhaps we didn't have one before. I guess the fact that you can build a website or you can build a blog, you can do whatever you want on the internet and put your words in, you know, the same way that the mainstream YouTubers and social media commentaries have kind of defined their own path. Indigenous people also have that option and um, are able to do that. The other thing in terms of creating a safe space on social media, so there's, you know, a lot of closed groups and, and they have like, you know, the, the, I won't say the, the call, but um, <laughs> they're, they're, you know, a safe space for Indigenous people to just interact and connect and share their stories on social media. But also, so I work for ABC Indigenous and I handle a lot of their social media channels. But it's also taking content that's written about Indigenous people and re-centering it for social distribution with Indigenous audience in mind. So just a bit about back and how things happen is that a story gets sent because obviously we have a lot of regional bureaus. A story gets sent, so this is Indigenous stories, it has Indigenous people in it and it has a recommended kind of... Facebook description and a lot of them are really a bit off the mark sometimes you're like you know it's a whole story about written about indigenous you know trainees or something but it focuses on the non-indigenous lawyer who set up this program 10 years ago <laughs> so it's really about taking those headlines reading the article and then rewriting what the description is to make it a safe article for indigenous people to interact with and it's only by seeing articles written about you and having your voice seen and heard that, okay, cool, people are interested in this content. You know, it has like 10,000 likes. Like, people want to hear our stories and which is encouraging younger people to come through to actually be the ones telling those stories. So I think that's a really great, you know, way that we can get people into the industry by saying, you know, not all you stories are, you know, horrifics and disadvantages and whatnot. And there are those stories and we'll maybe talk a bit about how to frame these stories on social media. But I think creating a safe space on this, you know, worldwide web for Indigenous people to have their stories heard and told, especially young Indigenous people, because that's, you know, who's occupying this platform. And we do, in yeah. the past we have traditionally, when we've looked at reporting on Indigenous issues, it has been kind of quite negative and, yeah. and negatively framed what impacts have you seen in good news stories and reporting about some of the positive things in our communities what what impact has that had that you guys have noticed in the community when people suddenly see stories about them that are not yeah 
Yeah. So I think it's just such a, you really see just how connected and encouraging and like, I guess the beautiful culture that is Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander culture in this, you know, social video clips or articles that do have this far reach. Like, you know, they have people like meeting cousins on these things and like, but it's also, you know, you know, there's a actually article about Indigenous female rangers and then you have like, you know, young kids in Sydney or Metro based, like, yes, that's, I want to go out to my country and want to, you know, be a part of these organisations or just do community work or reconnect with land. It's just really just like mending bridge of different communities and different people. Obviously, we're all not lucky enough to all move away from our own traditional lands. So it really just gives us that connection back as well. Like, I know when I see articles written about, you know, the mob in Cloncurry or Rockhampton, it's just like that connection and, you know, yeah, but through these positive view stories, obviously the negative view stories, but it's just the way that these stories are framed. So we know that... so. If there's a youth story that, you know, has juvenile offences or something, those stories we have to monitor very hard because obviously, like, it's not all sunshine and rainbows. It's a lot of racism on these things as well, which we monitor very closely. And I guess for other mainstream channels, I think that, or even for, you know, ABC itself, and I think all social media producers need to have cultural awareness training, especially if they're reporting or putting out these articles online because they don't have the Ed Pole responsibility that the journalists are writing about. They're coming from a different point of view, which is a communications, you know, other arts, fine arts degree point of view, and they're rewording these articles or putting in a different limelight, which dictates what kind of the commentary around these articles are going to be, whether it's just, you know, blatant racism or, you know, a hopeful message coming through in the comments. And they are. It's it's a hard space to work in sometimes when you, you know, release an article and you just have to like, literally just go and, like, hide hundreds of comments. Um, and you need to do, like, self-care for yourself as well because, yeah. like, as an Aboriginal person, like, I've yeah. worked in social media reading, like, racist comments. Yeah. And as an Aboriginal person, you're like... You're talking about me. Like, I can't separate myself from these comments that you're... You're talking about me and my family. And so you do actually have to, like, think about how you look after yourself. Yeah, and, and it's hard some days. Like, it's, it's really difficult. Sorry. You... No, that's... I was going to say, when I was editing Gizmodo, we still had comments on the site. Mm. And whenever I'd write an Indigenous science story, it would just come in like a flood so I'd, I'd get there at four o'clock in the morning and first thing I'd do is open up all these comments to approve and just go oh okay my heart would sink I ended up killing the comments on that website completely yeah. Yeah. just get them off the site because you know it's it's one thing for me to deal with it you know as a as an editor and a leader in that newsroom but to have other staff come in as well and have to deal that junior staff you know if i wanted to bring an intern in if i wanted to encourage more aboriginal journalists to join that organization and one of their first jobs is going to be moderating these comments and just reading all this hate every day that's an unsafe work environment yeah. so i killed them and it was the best thing i ever did yeah. Yeah. yeah, I wish you could kill the comments on some Facebook posts. Yeah, yeah. I've actually talked to Facebook a few times about that. You know, what 
what is the potential for us to be able to turn comments off here? You can do it on Instagram. You can, you know, mute tweets so that you don't get, you don't actually see the flood of comments coming through. But Facebook pages, there's no protection. But also, like, mainstream media, like, has something to say for themselves. They need to take responsibility because they leave those comments up there. They leave those racist comments there and will not get rid of them. What, what, What reason is that there to keep those racist comments up there? Just get rid of them. So it's their responsibility to kind of take a bit of action on these things as well. But also I think in terms of Indigenous media, like I think, you know, having Indigenous X, for instance, has been a really big way for Indigenous people to have their voices heard in their own way through the Twitter account and also through writing articles. And then I think it was really clever that they joined up with The Guardian to then have Indigenous people writing in for The Guardian. So, you know, these are Indigenous people who don't have journalism degrees. They're just people that have really unique stories that haven't been heard by a lot of Australians. And I think that a lot of Australians are interested in this content. They are wanting to hear these stories and I think people need to take some more risks to actually have that happen. And I think, you know, I've been really lucky that I've been able to write for The Guardian and for a few other outlets and I think the more that I do that then the more that people will reach out to me and ask me to write which is great and then I will always suggest to them oh you should reach out to this person or you know and put other people's names forward as well so I think that you know there are certain outlets that are doing better but particularly with a lot of the mainstream outlets I think they I don't know if it's that they're too scared, they don't want to do the wrong thing or they actually just don't really care or they don't, you know, have the drive to do that. But, yeah, I mean, I think that they really have a responsibility to be encouraging these stories, not just from Indigenous people but also from the multicultural community as well. Like, I was giving a, junk, a shout out to Junkie over here um, <laughs> because you guys commission a lot of Indigenous young writers and I, don't, I can't, obviously I don't know, but obviously that's coming through your yeah. leadership and that's only happening because there's an Indigenous woman as an editor. Yeah. So I guess, you know, or the other thing is like, you know, not only just having Indigenous journalists, but having Indigenous producers, having Indigenous editors, yeah. having Indigenous camera people. This is where the social change comes from. Yeah, you, you've got to have people in those positions of power yep. so that people can trust that your story is going to be told in the right way. You know, when I've got a young Indigenous writer coming to me and they've got a really vulnerable, you know, personal story to tell, they want to know that I'm not going to censor that or edit it or, you know, take away any of their pain or their fury or any other emotion that they want to express through that story. I'm, I'm a big advocate for making sure that people have a platform to tell their story in their voice the way that they intended. And obviously as a media outlet there's still legal things that we have to deal with. We can't outright defame people but there's always ways to to say things so that your message still comes across and the intent and the heart of your message comes across. But people want to know why there's not more black writers out there. It's how, how are they supposed to trust the editor that it's yeah. not just going to get cut to pieces, have a headline put on it that you never intended, end up being some terrible clickbait thing and off it goes without them even double checking. And there is so much mistrust between yeah. Indigenous people and the media because we've been burnt so many times. Exactly. So I will now 
like journalists probably hate it, but I don't care. <laughs> I will now, if they ask me for a comment or something, like particularly like a mainstream outlet, if they're like, can you comment on this or do whatever, I will say, look, if I give you a comment over the phone, I want you to send me exactly what you're going to write and then I will approve it because often they won't do that because they're like, oh, I don't have enough time, but I'm not giving you a comment unless you send it back to me and I know exactly or otherwise I will just write it for you and send it through to you and they're like, okay. It's perfectly reasonable to ask for a copy of your quote when you're going yeah, to be but quoted a lot of them don't uh, want you to do that. Like they're yeah. just like, they'll just want you to do it kind of, we'll just type it up so that they can spin it however they exactly. want to spin it. Yeah. It certainly sounds like that we're all in agreement here that one of the most <laughs> effective ways of ensuring them that Indigenous voices are heard and that the coverage of Indigenous stories is done well is to have Indigenous people working in in newsrooms. How, though, can we convince those that are responsible for, for the hiring to you know, employ Indigenous <laughs> candidates and, you know, why it's so essential that we have, and not only Indigenous voices, but as we've said, voices from yeah. a diverse range of, of backgrounds. Well, for one, show them the traffic that you get on these articles when they get shared <laughs> on Black Facebook. It goes through the roof. That's when I first joined and my managing editor went, the story went really well. Where's all this traffic coming from? And I'm like... <laughs> <laughs> But, but that's the thing, when you give people a platform to tell stories in their own voice, their own stories, those stories are always going to do really well because they haven't been heard before. They're fresh perspectives. You know, they're, they're new takes on things. They're, they're interesting for an audience. But also for a big chunk of the audience, they're relatable. People want to see themselves in media. They want to see themselves represented, their stories represented and told the right way. So when they have the opportunity to see that, it encourages more people to come forward and tell those stories. That's I, I think newsrooms understanding that the more diverse their teams are, and this isn't just newsrooms, this is literally any business. That's when I go and I interview teams that make, you know, robots, seriously, they tell me the more diverse their team is, the better their end product is. Because the more kinds of experiences and the more kinds of people you have in a room trying to solve a problem or trying to make a product, the better the end result is going to be, hands down. And that's not just talking about race or religion or gender or sexuality or, or any of that. It's socioeconomic background. It's ways of thinking. It's the whole left brain, right brain thing. The more diverse your team is, the better the end product will be. And media is no exception for that. And I think, as you were saying, like all workplaces can really do things that you could translate to a newsroom. So, you know, at our university, I think, I mean, I'm probably being biased because I work there, but I, I genuinely, it's one of the best workplaces I've ever worked in that I have felt genuinely culturally safe and sort of celebrated, like not just included, but celebrated. And I think it's because the university from the very top of the university, it is constantly talked about Indigenous education and research. It's it's constantly talked about as being something that is one of the most important things for the university. The Vice-Chancellor constantly talks about it. And you can see that trickle down then into all the faculties, all the teams. We've put in a lot of things in place to ensure that it is something that's front of mind for people. And so, you know, then 
that makes it more inviting for Indigenous people to work there. So now we have a huge staff of Indigenous people and then that makes Indigenous people feel more welcome and feel more supported. So it's kind of, you know, this domino effect of things. So there's you really, you know, have to create that environment. Like, I mean, I'm sure in the ABC it must be hard because it is such a big beast that and I know that you know all the newsrooms are having difficulty around diversity but yeah I mean how how in the ABC I guess would you do that (laughs) (laughs) I don't know like I I guess things for I guess coming back to the digital space like you know I think there's something like there's 800 minutes of content getting uploaded to the internet every minute yeah right and so I went to a conference on the weekends where I learned this all from. And the main mega trends, so, you know, you speak to all these people and they all have the ideas, but the constant trends is authenticity and diversity. That's what's cutting through all this content. And at the end of the day, you know, it's just about with so much content and so much use, good and bad, it's what's going to cut through and what people are going to spend. And it comes down to numbers, you know. Who's going to spend more than three seconds watching a video on Facebook? What's, what's that content look like? Who's going to look, um, read an article for more than two minutes? You know, what's cutting through? And the things that are cutting through is authenticity and diversity, and that's Indigenous content and content from people of colour and a whole bunch of diverse backgrounds. So if that's where the market's moving, well, they have no other choice, really. Otherwise, you know, they're going to get left behind by the likes of all these other digital media companies, and there's a lot who are taking up the space because they know what the audience wants. So when it comes to mainstream media, like, it's just the way it has to go. Yeah, I read an interview you did with the Walkley's magazine where you spoke about how important it is that that people of colour have that chance to, to work together. Could you maybe tell us a little bit about your experience of working with Alan Clark on, on the mm-hmm. Mark Haynes story, which, of course, you won the Walkley yep. for? Because I imagine that was a pretty harrowing story to work on how how important was it that that you guys were were teamed up so production started last january and i was brought on board as a digital producer with alan obviously the lead reporter journalist and producer and so this was a pretty big team because it was a cross-divisional abc project so there was a strange story the podcast studio and a digital team which i was part of and so me and alan were the two indigenous people working on this team I was lucky enough to go with Alan to Tamworth for the shoots and recordings and, you know, film setups and whatnot. And I guess just it's, for those who don't know, it's a young boy who passed away by suspicious causes in 1988. I'm in Tamworth. So we travelled back there quite a few times. And I guess just having that cultural support was, you know, I was obviously doing my job. I was taking photos, getting all the digital content ready. But... When people were saying, what, you know, what else were you there for? I was like, I was Alan's support system. You know, I am the one who can understand, you know, when... Because a lot of the stuff you... Yeah, as in, like, legal issues and ed polls, you know, it's a lot of issues, social issues that obviously happened in the 80s that we can't report on because it's not, you know, fact. But I guess being aware of the racism that was happening, being aware of the challenges happening, continuing to happen in the family, and just being that support system from him was really crucial to that project and it's crucial to a lot of projects. And by the end of the week, both of us were burnt out and we were exhausted and, you know, some nights you just get home and you, just, you do cry because it's a horrible story. And it's, a horrible, it's like so much pressure on you to do the family justice and do the community justice. It's just a lot easier if you have someone who understands 
the responsibility that you owe to that community. And, you know, our producers were fantastic. Our crew were fantastic. But it's not the same as, you know, the responsibility and accountability is not the same. So I guess that support system, especially in these heavier stories, is really crucial to this, you know, to telling these stories and doing these stories justice. Because if you, you know, editing's not until like the last, you know, three weeks. So if you're burnt out completely by then, you're not going to do, yeah, it's just, so it's, I think that's really important. And that's what we found on those trips. And the other trips that I've worked with, other Indigenous producers and storytellers, yeah. And Ray, you mentioned earlier your role with the, with the working lunch and, and mentoring. How, how important is mentoring, uh, especially, I guess, when we are talking about you know, young black journalists who are maybe just entering the industry? How, how important is, is that? Yeah, I, I think mentoring is vital. I think having someone that you can turn to that's a support network that understands everything that you're going through and, and has some answers to some questions that you might have that you feel comfortable asking because you've established that relationship is is so, so important. And mentoring can be anything. It can be anything from, hey, can you read over this pitch for me and see if it'll work to, you know, how do I negotiate a contract? What are my legal rights at work? Like, can they do this to me? Is is this okay? Because a lot of young journos will you know, be stuffed around by by outlets. And, and a lot of them come to me saying, hey, I, I'll, I'll write for free for you if you want. And I have to say, no, don't. <laughs> I offer to do things for free for organisations that are going to make money from your work. You know, the, there's community sites for that sort of stuff if you want to if you want to get some experience. But, yeah, I, I think having someone that can guide you and I think for me as well, because I didn't get a formal education as a journalist, I didn't, you know, tick all those boxes and get a piece of paper. I learned everything the hard way and a lot of times without someone to turn to to say, hey, is this right? Is this going to be okay? So having the opportunity to have someone there and say, look, I've made this mistake. Do you want to learn from me? And then they have the option to or not is is really good. And I, and I think even from a mentor perspective – it gives you a real sense that you have something to offer and that you can help and that you can you know, make someone's transition into this career a lot easier and a, and a lot better. And I don't know, like when, when I started in games journalism, there was three other women doing it and we just would find each other and, and huddle together at these conventions with thousands of men. And having each other to turn to was really, really important for those times. And I don't want there to be a future where it's either women walking into a room and they're the only one there or black journos walking into a room and being the only one there. I, I want there to be more of us so that we can all connect and use each other as support. So, yeah, mentoring's a way forward for that because, you know, you can make introductions and connections and bring everyone together. So... I'm really proud of what The Working Lunch does and I'm really proud that all the resources that we've developed through the program are available to anyone. It's not a walled-off kind of thing. It's a total not-for-profit. If you want to run a mentorship program in your industry doing what you do, you've got access to all those resources. So, yeah, really proud of it. Well, I feel like there's a lot more that we could talk about and I'm, I'm so grateful and I'm fully aware that we have asked all the wonderful women on this panel to do the emotional labour of being in our black encyclopaedia tonight. So I just want to 
reiterate how grateful I am and I think everyone in this room is, is really appreciative of everything that you've shared, not just the really specific and practical things that I think all of us can take away that work in the media, but also the feeling that you've brought to it and the experience that you've shared. So thank you, Natalie and Ray and Shannon and Yale so much. Please show your appreciation. Listening to the Walkley Talks podcast with me, Claire Fletcher. You can find links to all the stories mentioned in this discussion in our show notes. Sign up to our newsletter at walkleys.com/slash/subscribe, and you'll be the first to learn about our new episodes, events, and other opportunities. If you enjoyed this episode of Walkley Talks, you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favourite podcast app. And while you're there, please take a moment to rate us. This podcast is produced by Kevin Suarez with help from the two SER studios in Sydney, Australia. Thank you.